Luke chapter 14, verses 1 through 12. At that time, Herod the Tetrarch heard about the fame of Jesus, and he said to his servants, This is John the Baptist. He has been raised from the dead. That is why these miraculous powers are at work in him. For Herod had seized John and bound him and put him in prison for the sake of Herodias, the brother of Philip's wife. But because John had been saying to him, It is not lawful for you to have her. And though he wanted to put him to death, he feared the people, because they had held him to be a prophet. But when Herod's birthday came, the daughter of Herodias danced before the company and pleased Herod. So that he promised with an oath to give her whatever she asked. Prompted by her mother, she asked, Give me the head of John the Baptist here on a platter. And the king was sorry because of his oath and his guest, he commanded it to be given. He sent and had John beheaded in prison, and his head was brought on a platter and given to the girl, and she brought it to her mother. And the disciples came and took the body and buried it, and they went and told Jesus. The word of the Lord. Well, good morning. I'm Mike Traben. I'm one of the pastors here at Trinity Fellowship Church. I want to add my welcome to that of Mike's row this morning. If you're a guest with us, we're so grateful that you've joined us. If you're visiting for a second or third time, we're grateful to have you back. Thank you to the music team, Randy. Thank you for reading scripture. Thank you to the Whites for serving up in the sound booth this morning. <clears throat> well, last, uh, last Monday was Memorial Day. It's a big day in the neighborhood I live in. Um, as you know, my wife and I spent a big part of our adult life in the military. I grew up in a military family. It's, my paycheck is provided by the Department of Defense in my day job as your part-time pastor. And so, um, but as I was preparing for this sermon, I was always looking for an image and, and some things came to mind. And I just want to caveat that though I'm going to use a, a military image, it, in no way do I want to at all imply that I glorify war. I don't. Um, war is a, a terrible thing. Um, but I'm reminded because this celebration in our neighborhood is actually a, a bit of a, a mix-up from my point of view because we use Memorial Day in my neighborhood to celebrate veterans who have a whole other holiday in November. And so it's a bit of a weird thing for my wife and I. We get the, you know, they contact all the people who have a military service background and they want you to come, and they hang a medal around your neck, and they tell a little bit about your life, and it, it just feels awkward. Uh, it's an incredibly kind gesture on the part of the neighborhood, but it's, it's misplaced. Um, because Memorial Day is about those who've, who, honoring those who've given their lives in, in the service of our country. And so the link here is, we're talking about the death of John the Baptist, right? John the Baptist, who's languished in prison, who has to muster a, a, an enormous sense of courage throughout his whole life to walk out his ministry and to ultimately face his death, as we heard in the scripture that was read this morning. And I've thought to myself, you know, courage takes, takes many forms. There's emotional courage, there's intellectual courage, there's social courage, there's moral courage. And in the military sense, often, right, there's, there's physical courage. Our country awards military people, awards for valor. 
the, the highest award in our nation, the Medal of Honor, is, is for conspicuous gallantry at the risk of, of one's life above and beyond the call of duty. And these, why people do this, why people exhibit conspicuous gallantry and risk their lives above and beyond the call of duty happens for a number of reasons that defy any sort of formula or, or principle. Well, about seven years ago, uh, the President of the United States awarded a Medal of Honor to an Army Sergeant by the name of uh, Kyle White. He was given this award um, for an action that he participated in back in 2007 in Afghanistan. He was part of a 14-member patrol. They'd gone out to meet with Afghan villagers to have a meeting with the leadership. It was part of cultural engagement on the part of of the U.S. or the coalition forces there, but on their way back from this meeting, this 14-person patrol is ambushed. And over the next four hours of fighting, which claimed the lives of over half of these American service members, uh, this young man, Sergeant Kevin White, he, he took charge of, of what remained of his element. He provided critical life-saving. He established security. He passed information to the people that could help them. He directed airstrikes. He oversaw the evacuation. He literally did everything any person in the military could hope to do. It's an, it's an amazing feat for a young man. Well, why is it that this person, only 20 years old at the time, one of the most junior members of his team, what was it that enabled him to exhibit such behavior? At the beginning of this action, he was rendered unconscious and he was wounded. And when he woke up, he finds that the leadership is dead. <clears throat> and he thought to himself, well, it's just a matter of time before I'm dead. So I might as well help someone while I can. Well, allow me to contrast this Sergeant Kevin White, a real person and one of the most junior members of his team with a different character, a Captain John Yosarian, a fictitious character from Joseph Heller's novel, Catch-22. You might have read it in high school or college. Uh, John Yossarian was an army officer charged with great responsibility. And if you know the story of Catch-22, he's flying missions in the Second World War. He's the bombardier, um, right? In these aircraft, they had to fly 25 missions and survive. In order to go home, there was a 70% chance you were going to die. And in the story, Yosarian, who flies in the nose of this bomber, it's like this big glass greenhouse. So imagine, as the bombardier, he sees everything going on around him. He sees the weapons coming up, destroying airplanes. He sees his friends dying in his aircraft, in the aircraft to his left and right. And Yosarian becomes so overwrought with his desire to live that he begins to figure out ways of getting out of dying something I'm sure all of us, I hope, can relate to, right? I mean, none of us should want to die. And so he goes to the doctor and he says, hey, look, I, doc, I can't do this anymore. This, there's millions of people trying to kill me. You've got to declare me crazy so I can be sent home. And so where the novel gets its name, the doctor says, well, you know, there's, there's this Catch-22. Well, what's Catch-22? Catch-22 says that if you say you're crazy and you want to go home, and you're, you're crazy, you're, you're fearful of dying, then that proves you're not crazy. So you're normal, so you're staying. 
And in the storyline, the, you know, the leadership keeps elevating the number of missions he has to fly. And so Yossarian spends a lot of time in the hospital trying to come up with reasons to not fly these missions. Um, and, and very well, again, it, it, it's an incredibly traumatic thing. What this fictional character experienced, obviously, based on what real men experienced. But the catch-22 is we're not crazy for wanting to live, and neither are you and I. But God has called us to a place of embracing our death. And that's what I want to talk about this morning, right? Because the, the paradox of Christ's sacrificial death, as we've talked about throughout this Easter season, is that the, the way to a life is through a death, the death of Jesus, who through his death proclaims victory over sin and death. But it's also, as we've heard throughout this sermon series and in the Sermon on the Mount, uh, our own death to self-interest, as we call it. So what does any of this mean for you and me? How can you and I muster the moral and maybe, if called upon, even the physical courage to die to our self-interest, even if... In the cause of the kingdom, it means losing our physical lives, something that we as North American Christians aren't often familiar with. But, but some in our body have, have been placed in those positions for their faith. Well, we're continuing this morning in our series in the Gospel of Matthew. We're in chapter 14. Um, and as we heard last Sunday, as Mike preached a bit from chapter 13, Jesus has begun teaching in parables, right? In chapter 12, we encountered this turning point where Israel has really completed its rejection of, of, of the Messiah. And Jesus foretells the destruction of Israel if they don't repent. And he begins to focus on his mission to the Gentiles. And so he begins in chapter 13 teaching through this form of parables, right? These truths cast alongside reality. And his disciples are struggling to understand, and as Jesus explains it to them, he says, hey, I'm, I'm, I'm using parables because it's only those to whom the Holy Spirit gives ears to hear who can understand. Those really who've, whose hearts have already turned toward the kingdom, those are the ones to whom God is going to fully reveal himself and his truths. Well, our passage or excuse me, at the end of chapter 13, we see Jesus has returned to his hometown of Nazareth. It says he's teaching in the synagogues and people are questioning, well, who, isn't this the carpenter's son? Isn't this this boy that we've all seen grow up? This can't be the Messiah. And he says, right, you know, a prophet um, has no respect in his hometown. So Jesus returns to his hometown and is rejected. Well, our our passage this morning, the account of the death of John the Baptist, really begins the whole second part of Matthew's gospel, and it foretells the future of the story. John, the last of the Old Testament prophets, suffers the fate of all of the prophets who've come before him, rejection and death. Out of the other stories of Matthew in chapter 14, the feeding of the 5,000, Jesus walking on water, why would I choose to focus on John the Baptist this morning? Well, apart from Jesus Christ, 
It might surprise you to know that scholars say that John the Baptist is probably the most theologically significant figure found in the Gospels. In the Gospels, we think, oh, Peter, Paul, they're significant figures in the New Testament, but in the Gospels, John the Baptist, second only to Jesus as the most theologically significant figure in the Bible. And he's this transitional figure. You see, John forms this link between the Old Testament and the New. His public ministry ended 400 years of prophetic silence. He was this end-time prophet that the scriptures tell us, that Jesus says he came in the spirit and the power of Elijah. He was a voice crying in the wilderness, preparing the way for the coming Messiah. All four of the Gospels associate John with the beginning of the Gospel. His message and ministry marked the culmination of the law and the prophets, but it heralded the inbreaking of the kingdom of God. And as we look at Matthew's Gospel, we see that, that Matthew's Gospel stresses that, that John and Jesus stand together against this hostile religious and political opposition to their ministries. Matthew puts the story of the death of John the Baptist side by side with the story of Jesus teaching in his hometown to highlight that Israel has rejected the arrival of the kingdom of heaven. And so as we heard in our passage this morning in verses 6 through 11, we we get the details of the story of John's death. He's, he's murdered at the whim of wicked people through a bizarre sequence of events as part of the entertainment of Herod's birthday celebration. And in the broader context, though, John's death looks back to the death of the innocent children that, that Herod had commanded all those under two years of age be put to death, wanting to to stop the Messiah at his birth. It looks backwards to this death of the innocent children at Herod's command, and it looks forward to the death of Jesus. And yet, John's death is a horrendous crime. Yet, friends, God no more prevents this outrageous deed than he will the death of Jesus, or later Stephen, or other disciples or thousands of martyrs who followed, followed in Jesus' footsteps. And so this part of the story is important to us because just as Jesus was soon to follow in John's path, so are we as his disciples to be prepared for death, to actively engage in the death to our self-interest, and literally to prepare for our physical death whenever God calls us home. So where do, we find, where do we start to find the courage, the courage of a Sergeant Kevin White? Where do we find the courage to move towards such an experience of this life? Well, our spiritual courage is a growth process superintended by the Holy Spirit. Today, we, we celebrate Pentecost, as we heard in a call to worship. In the Old Testament sense, it's one of three major Jewish feasts called the Feast of Weeks. Pentecost occurs 50 days after the Passover, and it, it celebrates the end of the grain harvest for Jews or Old Testament Israel. The Pentecost that followed 50 days 
after Jesus' death and resurrection, as we heard this morning, was the occasion when the Holy Spirit was given to the believers in Jerusalem, as we see in Acts chapter 2. It's the distinct event, the miracle that began the period of the church, the age that you and I live in. And this spirit who inspired John, the same spirit that inspired John in all of his prophetic statements, the spirit that descended on Jesus and filled him with power for his mission to bring good news to the poor, to release the captives, is the same spirit which has been poured out onto and into all who have placed their trust in the death, resurrection, and promised return of Christ. And this spirit is what energizes our lives and our mission as Christians, as the called-out community of Christ, as the church. It's this same spirit that inhabited John and Jesus that inhabits you and I. Well, in verses 3 to 5, we see that some things about John. John was not a crowd-pleaser. As an Enneagram 2, I'm a people pleaser. If I have upset you in any way, it, it, it bothers me in a debilitating way. Don't use that against me. <clears throat> but John was a crowd pleaser. There's something to be learned from John's courage. He was courageous, and he didn't, as we see here, he, he lost his head because he didn't hesitate to expose the immorality of Herod and his lifestyle. As we saw earlier In Matthew, John confronted the hypocrisy of the religious establishment, the religious leadership of Israel. It it was a major theme of his preaching that that God, Yahweh, the the God of Israel, his end times wrath would soon fall on Israel. He says, he tells him, he says, the axe is laid at the root of the trees. And so John's calling Israel to repentance Israel was lost, just just like the Gentile world, unless they repented and received John's baptism. John called Jews to repentance because their heredity, the fact that they were sons of Abraham, the fact that they were in this bloodline, that just because they were a part of the nation of Israel was not an adequate safeguard to God's coming wrath. Because, friends, true repentance is a work of the Holy Spirit. And John's baptism was simply an initiation rite for those who had basically already put their heart in right relationship with God. But it's also for us as modern-day disciples to see that, that John had human frailties. We talked about this a few sermons ago. John was racked with doubts and fear and even anger, but, but, but nevertheless, he exhibited great courage in the face of the Pharisees, the tyrant Herod, and he fully accepted his subordinate role to Christ. See, this idea of John as the preparer for the one to who is to follow was, was John's own self-proclaimed role. So where can we find such courage? to confront religious hypocrisy in our own lives or amongst us, amongst the broader church? Where where can we find such courage to subordinate our will to God's will and to subordinate our self-interest 
to the interest of others. Well, our spiritual courage peaks when we've nailed our self-interest to the cross. In Matthew chapter 7, in the, at the end of the Sermon on the Mount, Jesus gives us the golden rule and he says that the way to the, the Christian life is hard and that few find it. Later in Matthew 16, Jesus demands self-denial from those who would follow him. He says, if anyone would come after me, let him deny himself, take up his cross and follow me. The image of self-denial that Christ gives without any hesitation to you and I, friends, is the cross. The cross, a heavy, bulky, demoralizing object that we're to take along when we follow him. I'm reminded in the Easter, or excuse me, in the Holy Week, we, we change our, our ornate gilded cross with a, a rugged wooden cross. I've carried it in here a few times. It's awkward. I'm always afraid I'm going to drop and be the guy who breaks it. And then the Enneagram 2 in me will be very, in, very crushed by your displeasure. It, the cross, it's... Will it slow us down and, and make us awkward? Will it make us unable to, to fit into the normal run of an everyday life? Yes. Will it give us a, a persecution complex? Would, would we become a spectacle? What would you and I look like if we carried a cross around with us as we followed Christ? Paul says in writing to the Corinthian church, he says, For I think that God has exhibited us apostles as, as last of all, like men sentenced to death, because we have become a spectacle to the world, to angels, and to men. We're called to this place of awkwardness and being a spectacle. The cross is, is inconvenient and awkward. In, in his book entitled No Handle on the Cross, Theologian Kosuke Koyama contrasts the image of the cross with that of a neat and well-packed lunchbox with a handle. Now, I doubt many here carry a lunchbox anymore it, it, at the time of writing. It was, but, but, right, the cross is inconvenient, but the, the lunchbox, it's really convenient. It's got a handle. The cross is ugly. Your lunchbox, if it's a cool one, the Batman one, is attractive, you don't look, well, you might today, but back then you didn't look like a fool carrying a lunchbox or a briefcase or a backpack or a purse. The cross is ugly. The lunchbox is attractive. The cross necessitates slow movement. The lunchbox enables fast movement. We can be efficient. Inefficiency contrasted with efficiency. Insecurity with security. Heavy-footedness with light-footedness, pain and glory, self-denial and self-assertion. He, he says, and I quote, Our souls, let alone our stomachs, are peacefully tranquil when our handles feel the comfortable weight of a lunchbox. With a nourishing and well-filled lunchbox in our hands, we can whistle and light-footedly follow Jesus from victory to victory. The lunchbox, he says, symbolizes our, our resourcefulness, our spiritual and mental energy, our high-powered, substantial theology, 
our good and honest thinking, our careful planning, and our sacred commitment to our faith, why not then say, let him prepare himself to take up his lunchbox and follow me? Then we can be energetic and resourceful, and if necessary, he says, we can even walk ahead of Jesus instead of following him. He offers this idea of, of carrying our cross with a handle to, to convey the image that means we're, we are efficiently controlling this thing we're carrying. You know, our, our religious dedication and our spiritual resourcefulness is more akin to the gospel of health and wealth and prosperity than the true gospel of a saving trust in the life, death, and resurrection of Jesus Christ. In the purest sense of righteousness, the Pharisees had a commendable lifestyle. Their religious dedication and spiritual resourcefulness had great value if, if in the light of right-heartedness. Yet these same people John the Baptist called you brood of vipers, who warned you to flee from the wrath to come? Bear fruit in keeping with repentance. And why? Because their spiritual resourcefulness, their religious efficiency, was not rooted in a right heart toward God. Jesus said, unless your righteousness exceeds that of the scribes and the Pharisees, you will never enter the kingdom of heaven. You see, friends, this is a warning to us. I'm a resourceful person. Resourceful persons like me, we don't seek help from others. I don't want to show my weakness. I know exactly what to do. I've, I've got good ideas. I've got good strategies. And that's not entirely a bad thing if your heart is in the right place, right? I mean, grace is opposed to earning, Dallas Willard says, but grace is not opposed to effort. God expects us to do something. Our resourcefulness comes from God. It's a gift from God, provided that we've allowed God to redeem it. Our corrupted form of resourcefulness, our, our self-interested, self-generated, self-reliant resourcefulness has got to be nailed to the cross so that it can be resurrected as a crucified resourcefulness, as Koyama calls it. Our resourcefulness, our energy, our ability must be received from the crucified and risen Jesus. And how do we, how will we know, right? He says, you'll be known by your fruit. The fruit of our, of this truth is communicated in part by our Self-denial. May you and I, friends, never, ever get ahead of Jesus. We're followers of Jesus. So when, when you and I set down our lunchbox or our briefcase or your purse or your purse or your fanny pack, whatever it is, that was supposed to be funny. When we lay down our resourcefulness and take up our cross and follow Christ, our spiritual courage will see us to our physical death. Ben Franklin said, in this world, nothing is certain but death and taxes. Death 
is the temporary end of our physical life, but it's, it's not the worst enemy of humanity. Alienation from God is our greatest enemy, friends. So in this instance, to be dead is, is more blessed than to be alive. In the case of John, the one who was murdered, he's truly alive, while those who murdered him are in reality the dead ones. John's life in ministry, John's death was not in vain. His life in ministry had long-term impacts. We read later on in, in Acts in chapter 19, there's an encounter with some disciples of John who had not yet received the Holy Spirit. They hadn't even heard of it. So John, years after his death, years after Christ's death and resurrection, the disciples of John have proliferated throughout the Mediterranean. Some say that some still exist today. He inaugurated this spiritual movement that has had a long effect. And his persecution and how John faced death became models for Jesus' disciples, and it's a model for us today. I'm reminded of um, my 88-year-old mother, who we moved into an assisted living facility uh, a year and a half ago. Terrible time during the COVID pandemic. My mom, absolutely resistant. Um, my mom, I'm not sure that I would call her a Christian. Her father was a minister back in the 30s and 40s that all, the most I can gather from my mom is that was a very um, off-putting experience for her to be the daughter of, of my grandfather as a minister. Um, but she has not adequately prepared for this stage of her life. I love her dearly. Um, she's struggling greatly. But it's just this reminder to me that she doesn't have Christ as a reality in her life. And she is fighting so hard to be anywhere than where she is. And I just, the greatest lesson for all of us in that can be to begin to prepare for our death. Our physical death. And it starts with dying to ourself. And clinging to Jesus. Paul says to the Corinthian church, he says, the sting of death is sin and the power of sin is the law. But thanks be to God who gives us the victory through our Lord Jesus Christ. Therefore, my beloved brothers and sisters, be steadfast, immovable, always abounding in the work of the Lord, knowing that in the Lord your labor is not in vain. Friends, we can work so hard to cling to what this life has given us, what this life has offered us. We can even, if you're on the opposite spectrum, work really hard to ignore and avoid what life has dealt you. If you're in that camp, I promise you that God has not forgotten you. God sees you. God is still chasing after you. But for the rest of us, let's remember that, that God has given us a purpose in this life. And this purpose is not just to continually improve our own position of comfort and privilege, but to lay down our lives and to take up our cross and to follow him 
to live out the golden rule, to do to others what we wish that they would do to us. And that cross, friends, is not convenient to carry. It's not something that's easily controlled. It's not something that brings you fame and recognition and glory and honor, a medal around your neck. It brings you an eternity with God. It, it brings you the promise of an eternal life without any of the crap that you've had to deal with in this life. So let us always abound in the work of the Lord, knowing that our labor is not in vain in whatever circumstance God has placed you. The object of our desire must always be Christ. The, the locus of our trust and the confidence of our trust must always be Christ. And the aim of our spiritual lives is, is to be, as Dallas Willard says, pervasively possessed by the person of Christ. You want the Holy Spirit in you. Praise God that he has poured out his spirit on all flesh. Friends, no one gets out alive. Everybody dies in the end. But through a death comes eternal life, and so we have to surrender. I was talking to a friend at lunch this week about what surrender can look like in a life. And that's our application, to die to our self-interest. Paul tells us, or excuse me, at the end of Catch-22, there's a Netflix series. I highly recommend that more than the book or the older movie. Um, at the end of Catch-22 in the Netflix series, this Captain John Yosarian, John the Baptist, John Yosarian, see the link there? Psalm 22 and call to worship, catch 22, see the link there. Um, at the end of this series, Yosarian, who's, who's fought so hard to not have to fly these missions, and his, his corrupt bosses just keep elevating the goal on him. Now it's up to 55 missions, and men have, in his airplane, he's been shot down, he's been wounded, people have died in his arms. It's, it's traumatizing. But at the end, Yosarian reaches the place where he's resigned to his death. Like Sergeant White, I thought I was dead anyway. I might as well do some good. And at the end of this series, you see Captain Yosarian in the nose of his airplane very efficiently doing his job and accomplishing his mission. That's what God is asking us to do to resign ourselves to our death, resign ourselves to dying to our self-interest, resign ourselves that at one day, God is going to bring your and my physical life to an end. And God is calling us to pick up our cross and to follow him. Paul says in Romans 12:1, he says, present your bodies as living sacrifices holy and acceptable to God. This is your act of spiritual worship or service, some translations say. I want to invite all of us sometime this week, I'd even say sometime today, to go somewhere and lay your body down on the ground 
and surrender to God. Surrender all of your life to God, all of your self-interest, all of your dreams, all of your desires. First surrender them to God and then let God begin to work with the resourcefulness that he's given you, the gifts that he's given you, and see how he blesses them. God can do his work in and through us when we present what we have to him. I want to end with this quote from Bishop Tom Wright. He says, what Jesus does with what we give him is so mysterious and powerful that it's difficult to describe. He's writing this as he's referring to Jesus feeding the 5,000, right? The, the disciples come to Jesus. It's in this same chapter. And they say, the people are hungry. We need to feed them. And Jesus says, well, what do you have? What do you have? And they present to him what he has, and he, he blesses it, and he breaks it, and it multiplies, and it feeds the people. Wright says, we, we blunder in with our ideas. We offer uncomprehending what little we have. But Jesus, he takes these ideas, these loaves and fishes. He takes our money, our sense of humor, our time and energy, our talents, our artistic gifts, our skill with words. Whatever we have to offer, and he holds them before his Father with prayer and blessing, and then breaking them. You see, this physical act of breaking them tells us there's a cost to our discipleship. He breaks them so they're ready to use. And he gives them back to us to give to those who need them. God cannot use you and I, friends, until we're broken of our self-interest. And because God meets us in the reality of where we really are, no matter who you are, where you are, what you're struggling with, God sees you, God is with you, God has not left you or forsaken you, God meets you in that place. And so you and I, in all of our resourcefulness, we can safely surrender to Jesus. So hold out before God whatever it is that you have. Allow yourself to be blessed and to be broken. And then apply your crucified and your resurrected resourcefulness to do for others what you wish they would do for you. Would you bow your head with me in prayer? Well, eternal Father, strong to save. Father, we come to you just with such great thanksgiving that, that you are this loving Father who runs after your prodigal children. Father, that you have made a way through your son Jesus that we would have access to you, that you've poured out your Holy Spirit on those who trust you. You've poured out your Spirit on the church that we would never be apart from you. Father, we're reminded that Jesus cried out on the cross, my God, my God, why have you forsaken me? And Father, I don't understand the divine mystery and 
how one member of the Trinity could ever be separated from another, but Father, part of your wrath was to, to fully understand what it would be like to be separated from you. And so, Father, we are just so grateful that, that we will never experience the depth of suffering, the depth of separation, the depth of evil and wickedness that Christ experienced on our behalf to accomplish victory over sin and over death. So, Father, I pray, we pray today that you would fan into flame afresh the spirit that you've poured out on each of us. Give us the spiritual courage to lay on our face or on our back and surrender all of our lives to you. Father, show us what we need to be broken of. Father, Break us of those things that we lack the power to be free of. And in so doing, Lord, you are blessing us. And continue your work to mold each of us into the instruments of your will. That we might bring glory to you and your kingdom as we proclaim the name of your son, as we as we make disciples of all people. May we continue to grow to be the church that if somebody was a Christian, they would want to be here. And we pray all these things in the name of your son, Jesus. Amen. Let us stand together.